I want to welcome those watching online, Facebook, all that there. Uh, and while I'm talking about that, just a wonderful reminder that I have to give every two to three months that uh, I am grateful for the gift of technology and live streaming and all that. Uh, but live stream is a resource, not a replacement for community, all right? And so let me just, I need, I need to say it like every two, three months, all right? Just like, it, it's a resource, not a replacement. And so no judgment to those of you watching online right now. I know you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but, we're, if, you're, but if, you, if you can make it to church, make it to church. There's something about gathering together, being in the room, worshiping together as the people of God. And so by, by all means, if you need to, if you can't get to church and, and you're out of town and all that, you're sick, please utilize it. But as much as you can, get into the house of the Lord. This coming Wednesday, I'm going to be preaching, uh, teaching a class on prayer. Uh, the first one was done a uh, couple of weeks ago on the first. But if you're struggling in your life with God, uh, from 7 to 9 this Wednesday, right in this room here, I'll be teaching on prayer, and so you can sign up for that. Just, just come uh, to that. Uh, we are in a series focusing on living an authentic life, and we've been focusing on themes that have come out of uh, the Emotionally Healthy Woman book and have uh, added our own little spin to it. Last week, I talked about the ways that lying keeps us from living an authentic life. Today, I want to talk about the ways that blaming keeps us from living an authentic authentic life. And so really, essentially, the invitation for us is to, to stop blaming, to quit blaming, and to choose a different kind of way. And so we're going to look at Genesis 3 and how blaming comes right from the actually beginning of, of the Bible. If you can, uh, there we go, Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse number 1, we see blaming from the very beginning. Hear the word of the Lord. Many of us are familiar with this story. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the uh, fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die, although God didn't say anything about touching it. The evil one is already twisting and crafting and all that there. Uh, You will not die, certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, verse 4. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom... She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then both of, uh, b- the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And then the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent 
deceived me and I ate. And then we see judgment upon the serpent and the earth, judgment upon Adam, judgment upon Eve. And then it says in verse 21, then the Lord God made garments of skin to cover, get rid of the fig leaves that they had, the way that they covered themselves. God now wants to cover them. He gave them garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, open our eyes, our ears, our hearts this morning that we would receive every gift of revelation from the Holy Spirit today. And Lord, would your truth set us free? We offer this time to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Today we're talking about blaming and what it means for our lives with God and with others. And if you spend any amount of time observing human interactions in person, online, on television, you'll find out pretty quickly that there's always someone else to blame. Always someone else to blame. We all blame. When someone asks me, a a New Yorkian, why I don't speak Spanish fluently, I blame my parents. (laughs) I say, well, if my parents spoke Spanish to me as a child growing up, I would understand this and speak it very fluently. Later for the fact that I'll be 40 years old next year and I've had plenty of time to learn the language myself, but it's their fault. If they taught me when I was a child, I would have mastered it by now. We blame. There's always someone or something to blame. We blame parents. We blame spouses. We blame friends. We blame co-workers. We blame our children. We blame our schools. We blame subway systems. We blame our bosses. We blame employees. We blame millennials. We, we blame leaders. We blame weather patterns. We blame traffic. We blame Republicans. We blame Democrats. We blame police officers. We blame the church. We blame immigrants. We blame Jews. We blame Arabs. We blame the Russians. Well, uh, and we, we blame technology. We, 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 we blame God. We have a way of blaming anything and everything and anyone that's in our way. We say things like, my life would be so stress-free if it wasn't for, and you fill in the name, blame. We say, if, some, if someone taught me how to manage money, I wouldn't be in debt. Blame. We say, that person brings the worst out of me. Blame. You say, Pastor Rich, if you only saw the people that I worked with, you see why I don't have a good spiritual life. Blame. If she wasn't wearing that outfit, I wouldn't have lusted after her. Blame. If my kids didn't act crazy, I wouldn't scream at them. Blame. As pastors, we say, if only more people volunteered, the church would be at a better place right now. We blame a lot. And at the core of blaming is fault-finding and scapegoating. When something bad happens, the first question we want to know or, or we ask is, whose fault is it? Who's responsible for this? 
And so I've been thinking about the ways that I blame this week. This is, the, I'll tell you, I, I preached about lying this week, last week and I was just made aware of all the ways that I, I exaggerate and lie and spend the truth. Now I'm preaching on blaming. This past week I saw blames all through my life here and the ways that I blame. I've been paying close attention to the ways that I blame personally. On Monday, I was looking for an icy to give to Nathan. He went into the freezer, and he said, Daddy, there's no ices here. I said, I thought I just bought ices. Where are the ices go? And he said, they're not in there. I said, I'll get some for you later. And a little while later, Rosie texts me and says, uh, the ices were left outside. And, and my first instinct was, and I responded to her, who left it out? That's, that's my first thing. I'm looking to find faults. Who left it out? Not are they still good, not did they melt, but who, who left it out? I want to locate fault. Whose problem is it? Earlier this week, I took my children. It was me, Karis, and Nathan hanging out for the day, and I took them to the mall, and, and we went to the food court. We got Wendy's, and we ordered some food for them. We got the food, got the bags, and then we had to look for seats at the crowded food court. We finally, after a while, find the seat far from where the Wendy's was. I, I get the bag. I open up the chicken nuggets here. One chicken nuggets for you, and order a chicken nuggets for you. One order of french fries for you. Hey, where's the other order of french fries it's it's not in there and i go i paid for two orders they only put one and I'll, they always do this you know i'm already it's like i haven't been to this first time going to this one they, they always do this to me now i gotta get up and walk to the other side of the food court and let them know you messed up the order. And so I'm waiting there patiently. My toe is already tapping here. I'm a little restless here. And then it was like God said, look at your receipt. And so I let me check my receipt. And I look at it. I go, oh, I only paid for one. Um, but then immediately I said, they didn't get the order right. They didn't get the order. It's their fault. And then I realized I'm preaching a message on blame. Maybe I didn't say it loud enough or clear enough that I wanted to, but... I quickly blamed. This week, I've been thinking about running again. And immediately, I started blaming the weather. It's too hot. Or I, now I got to find the, uh, I got to work my schedule out with Rosie's schedule here. Now I'm internally blaming Rosie because I can't run. I can't go for a run now. We blame a lot. I saw blaming in my children this week. I was in the living room and... Karis was in the kitchen, and she knocked over a lid from one of the pots. There was nothing in the pot, but she knocked it over somehow, and it came crashing on the ground. I walked over, and the first thing was, Daddy, why did you put the pot there? I said, wasn't even, I didn't even put the pot there. What are you talking about? It wasn't in me, but her first instinct when the pot lid hit the ground was, it's your fault. Why did you put the pot there? We all blame. Kids blame. Adults blame. Poor people blame. Rich people blame. All kinds of people along the spectrum blame. And what I want you to hear today is beyond that we blame a lot, the spiritual truth that we're going to see in Genesis 3, that when our lives are lived uh, blaming, we open ourselves up to demonic powers and forfeit our power. Now, that might sound a bit dramatic, but we're going to see it in the text today. When we live our lives blaming... And whether we're talking about I can't find my keys or whether you're talking about immigrants are the problem that our countries we're in right now, when we live our lives blaming others, we open ourselves up to demonic powers and we forfeit our power. And so in our text in Genesis 3, we find very, from the very beginning of the Bible, blaming taking place. 
In Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God creates the world. God makes a good creation. God creates the garden. God creates paradise. God, the, the Bible is off to a wonderful, glorious, transcendent start. God creates humanity, and humanity enjoys fellowship with one another in Adam and Eve. They enjoy fellowship with God in the garden. God gives them a tour of paradise, fully furnished for them by the time they get there. You have all the food you want. Creation is here to steward, to manage, to, 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 to serve. And the ground will serve you and the world and, and, and the earth will serve you as well. A wonderful relationship of mutuality, humanity with humanity, humanity with God, humanity with creation. But God at some point says, as, as he's giving them a grand tour of Eden, you can eat from there, you can eat from there, enjoy that. Oh, you, you, that's going to taste fantastic. Wait till you add some uh, salt on that one. Wait till this. I mean, he's giving them a grand. But then he says, all right, just don't touch that one. Everything else is yours. Just don't touch that one. What God was doing at that moment when he was saying, just don't touch that one, was he was creating the possibility for choice. Creating the possibility for choice. Because God wants to be loved in the same way you want to be loved. You don't want, you don't want to force someone to love you. You want someone to have the choice to love you. And love says, I give you the choice not to love me. That's what love says. And I'm not a robot. I don't want you to be a robot. I don't want to force you to love me. So God sets out the conditions for choice, which also creates the conditions for sin. And instead of them loving God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength, instead of obeying and listening to God, they start going their own way. The serpent comes, and the serpent begins to blame God, saying, God is holding out on you. You're not everything you you can be because he's holding out on you. That tree there, he's holding out, and he starts blaming God very subtly and insidiously. If you want to be like God, you have to eat from this tree. And what Adam and Eve do, as you know, they take from the tree and they eat, and sin enters into the world. They go beyond their limits. They take from the tree. Sin enters into the world, and when sin enters into the world, the manifestation of that sin is shame and blame. Shame and blame. Adam and Eve realize they're naked now. They're ashamed now. They cover themselves with fig leaves, trying to figure out they're disoriented. What's happening here? The the sense of innocence that they've had is now gone. And then they hear God coming in the garden, calling their name, Adam, Eve, in the very cool of the garden. And they hide because they they are afraid. And now they go behind the tree. They're they're hiding. and, And God asks them, where are you? And then he says, Adam comes out and says, I hid because... I heard you were coming. This is the first time now. They didn't have a relationship with God of of being afraid of God in that way. Now, because of shame, they are afraid. We hid because we were afraid, because we were naked. He says, who told you you were naked? Now, when God asks questions, God is not looking for information. When God asks questions, God is not launching an interrogation. When God asks questions... God is staging an intervention. He wants them to locate themselves in their estrangement. God doesn't need information, and God's not trying to interrogate them. He's trying to help them locate themselves in their estrangement and and identify the voices of deceit that they have been listening to. And so God says, who told you you were naked? Where are you? And Adam's response is telling. 
The first thing that Adam says is not words of confession and not words of repentance. The first thing he says are words of blame. The woman you put here with me, he blames two people in one sentence. Adam is good. He has a PhD in blaming. The woman you gave me, both of y'all, are the reason why sin entered into the world. And so God now sees Adam, he's blaming, he's, he's pointing this way, pointing at both of them. God says, Eve, what, what happened? And then she says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And when we, what we see from the very beginning of the Bible is that the root of blaming is demonic in nature. It's demonic. The source of blaming is demonic in nature. And at the core of overcoming blaming is a recognition that there are evil realities that want to split us from God and split us from each other. Whenever you see blaming, Satan is near. Now, let me unpack it. Richard Rohr says that the, the, the great sin is the sin of accusing. Satan, the name Satan means the accuser. And what the accuser does is accuse. And whenever we are accusing, whenever we are blaming, whenever we are laying the weight of fault on other people and not on ourselves, we are doing the work of accusing and blaming. Whenever we lay the fault with someone else and to preserve ourselves, to protect ourselves, we are doing the great sin of blaming. Love is other-oriented. Blame is about self-preservation, but it's a self-preservation by laying the fault at your feet. And blaming is dangerous because blaming cuts us off from each other. This is why whenever you get blamed by someone, your first response is defensiveness or wanting to fight back. Let your boss blame you. Let a coworker blame you. Let your spouse blame you. Let your boyfriend blame you. Immediately, you're going to get closed off defensive, and you're going to want to fight back. And so we need to watch ourselves and watch our souls. Because when you want to blame someone, as Richard Rohr would say, you're almost always not feeling good about yourself. Whenever you blame someone, you're almost always not feeling good about Yourself, And so our blame is a way of discharging our pain on somebody else. And when, as Rohr would say, our pain is not transformed, it gets transmitted. Any pain that's not transformed in us gets transmitted out to someone else. We project it onto someone else. And the projection of our pain is manifested when we blame And when we blame, we are in dangerous territory. I don't want to be dramatic here, but I will be. We are never more like Satan than when we are lying and when we are blaming. We are, he is the father of lies, what we talked about last week, and he is the accuser of the brethren. And we're never more like Satan when we are lying and when we are blaming. When we blame, we say essentially these three things. It's your fault. You did something bad. You should be punished. It's your fault. You did something bad. 
You should be punished. And when we blame, there are at least three consequences. Uh, blame, uh, blaming damages relationships. It leads us into self-deception, and it diminishes our power. This is what blaming does. It damages relationships. It leads us into self-deception. Why? Because the problem is always out there. When you blame, there's no ownership. When you blame, there's no responsibility. It's your fault. It's their fault. The, the problem always lies outside of you, which is why blaming is often a way to cover our own shame and the way that we deal with our shame. And blaming diminishes our power. We don't use the power that God has given us to change what we can change. But this is the reality that's before Adam. This is the reality that's before Eve. This is the reality that's before us. Blaming damages relationships. It leads us into self-deception. It diminishes our power. And so if this is our reality, and it is, every single one of us, this is our reality. How do we get out of it? How do we, if, if truth is the antidote to lying, as I talked about last week, what What's the antidote to blaming? I, I want to just name two things. If truth is the antidote to lying, it is confession and responsibility that is the antidote to blaming. Confession and responsibility. Now, to take responsibility doesn't mean that others haven't done wrong to you. To take responsibility doesn't mean that there aren't truly difficult realities that you are facing in life. To take responsibility does not mean that others aren't at fault. I think about situations where the blame, the fault, is, is, is as clear as day. I think of situations where someone abuses power. When a leader, a pastor, a boss crosses a boundary physically, sexually, and the temptation for the person who's violated, the temptation is to say, I'm at fault for letting that person do that to me. And I, I can't explore every scenario here in detail. But, it, but if someone crosses a boundary without your consent, you are not to blame. They have sinned against you. You are not to blame. Now, by God's grace, you need the wisdom to discontinue this, the wisdom to get away from it, the wisdom to not allow this to be perpetuated in your life. But sometimes the situation is they violated you. They sinned against you. They crossed a boundary. And yet, that doesn't mean that you have to stay where you are. And so, confession and responsibility. I first want to talk about confession. Because if we're going to get out of blaming, and let me tell you, I was blaming left and right this week, in big ways and in small ways. And I was brought awareness, the Holy Spirit was bringing awareness to these things. And I realized I know I'm not the only one. To, to move out of blaming means we need to embrace a, a spirituality of confession, to appropriately name our complicity. Uh, confession positions us, to be honest, about the ways we blame. You know, in AA meetings, when someone comes into an AA meeting, the first thing they say is to say, hi, my name is so-and-so. I am an alcoholic. And then they are greeted, welcome, so-and-so. If we were to go around the room, we each could take turns and say, hi, my name is Rich. I'm a blamer. And we would say, welcome, Rich. And then we go down the line. 
But it begins with confession. It begins with naming reality. It begins with being honest with ourselves. Confession helps us to see that we often get stuck at laying the problem on somebody else. And so confession helps me to love others better, empowers me to do what I can. And at the core of confession, it is essentially saying that we somehow, some way, we're not exempt, that we have contributed to realities that's around us. Now, I come back to a statement made by G.K. Chesterton, a man who, through his writings, led C.S. Lewis to faith. And G.K. Chesterton, a century ago, in response to a newspaper article that asked, what's wrong with the world? Some a newspaper article said, what is wrong with the world? And he, he wrote in the newspaper to the editor, and he was well known by this time, and his response to the editor who asked the question, what's wrong with this world, is very simply, dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. That was his letter to the editor. I am. If we write it, we say, to whom it may concern, they are. Sincerely yours, everybody. It's everybody else's fault. They are to blame. But when we are confessing our sins and confessing our complicity, we come out of blaming into living in truth, living in reality. Ron Roheiser says, we are never more healthy individually and as a community than when we are confessing our sins. As a community of God together and as individuals, we are never more healthy than when we are confessing our sins. This is why regular confession as a church family is so important. Last year before we took communion together, we confessed our sins together. At the end of this service, we will confess our sins together because we're saying we're all in the same boat. We all are some way complicit, and instead of blaming, we need to begin by confessing. Now, to confess doesn't mean we harbor shame. What often happens is instead of, going, instead of, instead of blaming others, we end up blaming ourselves in a very destructive way. And so we, I, instead, of, I won't blame you, but now I'm blaming me. Confession is not about self-blame. Confession is more... Freeing than that. Because if you're living in self-blame, you're not free. You're still now living under the pressure of shame and condemnation. But confession gets you out of it. And so instead of moving from other blame, we move from self to self-blame. And that's as destructive. The invitation is confession. Now, now some of us, you're, you're crushed under the weight of self-blame. And you have now taking on the weight of self-blame, and it's crushing you. When, when children see their parents get divorced, it's often children who say, it's my fault they got divorced. No, it's their fault. They didn't work it out. But we internalize it. We say, it's my fault. I'm the one to blame. And so we have a way of either the destructive power of blaming somebody else or the destructive weight of blaming ourselves. And so the opposite of blaming others is not blaming ourselves. The opposite of blaming others is confession, which frees us to experience God's grace and mercy in our lives. 
confession. When we confess our sins openly and honestly, living in reality, it then positions us to take courageous responsibility for our lives. And so how do we move from blaming? We need confession. But we also need to take, courageously take responsibility. In other words, refuse to forfeit your power. Now, I want to be clear. Some of us in this room have grown up under very difficult conditions. Some of you have suffered. Some of you have been abused. Some of you have come from socioeconomic poverty, immigrating into this country, experiencing hardship after hardship. And that is true. And at the same time, what is true is you have power. If, you, if we believe that God has died for us in the person of Jesus, raised from the dead, sent us the Holy Spirit to dwell in us, you have power. Which is why at New Life, we don't believe that just because you've been shaped by your particular families and you have negative legacies from your particular family, that that pattern has to persist one generation to the next. You have power. That just because your family has experienced some form of dysfunction and sin, that does not have to be your lot. You have power. That just because everyone around you is getting divorced, everyone around you is experiencing a level of destruction, a level of death, a level of sin, that does not have to be your reality because you have power. You have more power than you think. And we often, we often say to ourselves, my conditions need to change before I can change. And God's saying, no, no, I've given you the Holy Spirit. So that even in your, if your conditions don't change, you can change in the name of Jesus. We all have power. But it takes courage and responsibility, the courage of responsibility, not to blame. Now, when I think about courage to take responsibility, I think about my father. Richard Sr. My father could have easily blamed his father for his own mistakes. My, my late paternal grandfather, Alberto, who's on, uh, featured on the screen, he, he was a wonderful athlete. But he wasn't the best father by a long shot. He was a womanizer most of his life. He was an absentee father. My father would meet him at seven years of age, and then he'd disappear and come back and disappear and come back. And I called my father last night because I wanted to get the story right in terms of his blame towards his father. I said, Dad, how long, how many years did you blame your father? And he said, really, the blame kicked in at about 20 years of age when I got married to your mother, he said. And he said, from 20 years to 50 For three decades, I blamed your grandfather. I carried blame. Whenever I was with my children, I blamed them. Why weren't you with me? Whenever he struggled to be a good parent or a good husband, he blamed his father. Why why didn't you show me? And for 30 years, he would carry deep blame and resentment, unforgiveness against his father. But about 12 years ago, my father wanted to confront some of the areas of his own life and to find some closure and to move out of blaming into forgiveness, 
to move out of blaming into responsibility, to move out of blaming into freedom. He could have lived his entire life blaming his father for his own sins, but he chose a different way. Some 12 years ago, my father hadn't seen his father in over 25 years, but he needed to find him to move from blaming to freedom. And a couple of years ago, my grandfather passed away, and my father decided to go write something on Facebook as a kind of tribute to his father and to talk about the journey that he went on with his father. My father captured it this way on his page on Facebook. I just want to read it for you. He says, some 12 years ago, I spoke with my wife and told her I needed to find my father as he was distant from me and the rest of his children for so many years. I needed closure. I needed to forgive him personally. I decided to go on a journey to Salinas, Puerto Rico. I went there kind of blind, not knowing where I was going. But I remember that I walked by faith, not by sight. It took me almost a full day to find my father. I had to ask many people, including the police department, for direction. I finally reached a home where he was living, and he arrived there soon after I did. It was more than 25 years since I've last seen him. He says, when he saw me, he was in such shock. He said, Ricky, is that my Ricky? And I said, yes, father. And he started crying like a little baby, like I'm crying now as I write this. He invited me in, and we talked to almost one in the morning. He was still able to walk. I went with only one purpose, and that was to forgive him, to pray with him, and to tell him despite the abandonment, I still love him and wanted him to hear it straight from my heart. The following day, we went to Ponce, laughed some more, sat down in the park, and spoke some more. I asked him why he was never in my life, and he had no good answers. And today I know he was battling demons, self-doubt, alcoholism, and other things like the abandonment he experienced from his father. He never really gave it a try to be with me or his other children. He had some serious dark sides. And since my last visit with him, I was able to stay connected and spoke with him from time to time. That made me happy, but more importantly, I believe it made him happier. He lived to be 87 years old by the grace of God. Today, I have peace in my heart, mind, and soul. I will miss talking to him and hearing his voice. Rest in peace, Albert Luis Villodas, Sr. de Soto. He is in a better place. This is my father with his father when he met him that weekend in Puerto Rico. My father could have lived the rest of his life blaming his father for all of his shortcomings, but he would have forfeited his power. In visiting his father, my father realized the significant gaps his father had, realized the deep pain he endured. And my father forgave him and now takes greater responsibility for his own life. Wouldn't it have been nice for him to have an affirming father? Of course. Wouldn't it have been nice when his birthday came around to get a birthday gift and a birthday card and a cake and all that? Of course. But he didn't have that. And yet at the same time, although he didn't have that, he did not have to stay stuck there. And instead of offering blame, he offers forgiveness and takes responsibility. Let me close with this. In our text, for all the blame 
and shame and sin and spin and lying, God is at work in his grace. And surely, we can't overlook the fact that when they sinned, they had to deal with the consequences of their sin. After they sinned, judgment comes upon the earth, judgment comes upon Adam, judgment comes upon Eve. But the story doesn't just have consequences and judgment. The story includes compassion and grace. The story concludes here, after they sinned, they sewed fig leaves for themselves, but God said that wasn't enough. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God made garments for him. They tried to cover themselves, but the covering wasn't sufficient enough. He needed to cover them himself. He needed to kill and sacrifice an animal and now make garments of skin for Adam and his Eve. And from the very beginning of the Bible, we see from the very opening pages of the Bible that, that everything in the Bible points to Jesus, that everything in the Bible points to the work of the Son of God. From the very beginning, we, we, we see God making a sacrifice and covering Adam and Eve. And what we see is this is a sneak preview of what's to come, that Jesus comes into the world that is stained by sin, that we are the ones truly responsible that we are the ones who go our own way, that we are the ones who make war, that we are the ones who are complicit, that we are the ones who put him on the cross, and yet he bears our sin and takes our punishment. Jesus Christ is the blameless one who takes on the blame of all of humanity but doesn't return blame in in return. As he's on the cross, he doesn't say, Father, it's all their fault that I'm here. He says, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. The the son of the living God, he he is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the spotless lamb of God, the blameless lamb of God who takes on the blame of all of humanity. And on the cross and in his life, Jesus doesn't defend himself. He doesn't argue. He doesn't open his mouth. He takes the blame that we deserve. He bears it on his body, carries the cross, absorbs it completely, and he takes it to the grave. And when he takes it to the grave, he doesn't burst out of the grave in resurrection power with blame in his hands. He bursts forth out of the grave with peace in his hands. The first words he speaks to his disciples was, guys, how could you leave me like that? How could you abandon me like that? The first words he speaks to his disciples who are hiding in a room because the fear of the Jews is, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Jesus, the blameless one, takes on our blame, takes on our shame takes it to the grave, buries it in hell, rises in power, offers us peace. And it is is this. We receive this now. By faith, we receive all this now. And it is his very death and resurrection that has now transformed the ways we blame. To move from blaming into confession. To move from blaming into responsibility because you have power. Moving from blaming to forgiveness. The the blameless one takes our blame and forgives us. 
And it is his forgiveness that is to lead us out of blame into confession. His forgiveness that leads us out of blame into responsibility. His forgiveness that leads us out of blame into forgiveness. But the first step for us is to confess. Let's pray together. Who are you blaming? Where are you stuck? Where is God calling you to, by his power, begin to take responsibility? The blameless one takes our blame. And forgives us. Lord Jesus, Lord, you could have reciprocated the judgment that was put on you on us, and yet you offer grace and forgiveness. Lord, would you transform us by your life in the small ways and the big ways that we accuse and blame, whether it's ourselves that we blame or others. Lord, liberate us. May we be a community at New Life here that lives in truth, that lives with confession on our lips. May our relationships be marked by love and grace, forgiveness, mercy, justice. And may we bear witness to your life wherever we go. We pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, let's all stand together. Before we sing together, I want us just to pray a prayer of confession. And when we pray these words together, we're essentially saying we're all in the same boat. We all blame, we all scapegoat, we we all identify the problem as out there. But when we confess on Sunday morning like this, we're saying, Lord, do a work in me. My heart throughout the course of this week was so convicted of all the ways, small ways and big ways, that I assign fault outside of me. And I've had to come back to God many times for forgiveness. This is just one of the ways that we root ourselves in truth and confession and responsibility. Let's pray this together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you through our own fault, in thought, in word, in deed, in what we have done, in what we have left undone. For the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, Forgive us all our offenses and grant that we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Let's sing together. Here I am, God, arms wide open, pouring out my 
life gracefully broken. Here I am. Here I am, God, arms wide open, pouring out my life gracefully broken. Your power at work in me. I'm broken gracefully I'm strong when I am weak I will be free Your power at work in me I'm broken gracefully I'm strong when I am weak I will be free Here I am, God Arms wide open, pouring out my life gracefully broken. Here I am, God. Arms wide open. Our response to him pouring out my life gracefully broken. Let's sing that chorus together. Here we are, God. Let's sing it together. Here I am, God. Pouring out. Gracefully broken, here I am. Sing that through with everything we have. Here we are, Lord. Here I am, God, arms wide open. Pouring out. Pouring out my life. Gracefully. The invitation to live a life in truth and live an authentic life, a full life, a true life, is one that is rooted and established in the love of God, in the mercy of Jesus, the blameless one who takes our blame and invites us to live a life of freedom. I want to have our prayer team come to my left invite those who are going to be offering the bread and the cup to come to my right. And when we take the bread and the cup, we, we're essentially coming to the table where the blameless one, we are reminded of the blameless one taking on all of our blame. When we take the bread and the cup, we're saying, Lord, you could have offered judgment and blame in return, and yet you offer free grace. And as we take in the bread and the cup, May that nourish our souls and our bodies to live lives of confession and responsibility and forgiveness. And so we'll have Kelly and Shirley here to offer the bread and the cup. And we have our prayer team here. Uh, Many of us, my my father, 
for decades lived blaming his father. And I don't know all of the consequences that he carried and the weight that he carried and the pain that he carried as a result of that. But he realized three decades is way too long. And certainly there's a time to grieve when others wrong us. There's a time to lament. There's work to be done in our souls. There's processing to be done, especially when people wound us and hurt us. But instead of remaining there and just blaming others for the rest of our lives, God has given you power. God has given you grace. And sometimes you just need someone to pray with you and pray for you to help you take the next step. And so whether, you're, whether you are a lifetime blamer or whether blaming has been coming up more and more, uh, allow someone to lay their hands on you, anoint you with oil as a sign of the Holy Spirit's power in your life, and may your life get a little more free this week. I also want to invite you, a lot of this, the basis of this content, as we've mentioned, is to come out of the Emotionally Healthy Woman book. And there's a lot of nuancing in that book and things that I can't explore in just 30 minutes or so. And so I want to invite you to, to purchase that, whether downstairs or online, to just help. That'll be a good next step to locate our blaming and all the ways that keep us not free because the problem is always out there as opposed to saying, Lord, begin with me. Whether you're coming for prayer, whether you're coming for the Lord's table, please come forward. Let me invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. Those watching online, feel free to open your hands right where you're at. With your hands and your hearts in the posture of receiving brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and may he keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and fill you with peace. And may you walk out of this building in the power of the Holy Spirit, confessing your sins, taking healthy responsibility, forgiving others as God has forgiven you in Christ. And may you experience a life, a joy, a freedom, an openness. May you experience the very life of God. I bless you all today in the strong and the beautiful in the blameless name of Jesus. And the people of God said, Grace and peace to you all.